Hello and welcome to the Human Boombox. My name is Megan Minty and today on Genre Genetics, we're going to look at an alternative rock genre and subculture that emerged during the mid-80s and faded away by the mid to late 90s. We're going to get down and dirty with grunge music. In the rain-soaked, cloudy city of Seattle, Washington, in the mid-1980s, a new sound was starting to emerge. It fused elements of punk rock and heavy metal, but without punk's structure and speed. This underground Pacific Northwest style would surprisingly become the biggest music genre of the early to mid-1990s. Their lyrics brought socially conscious issues into pop culture and explored what it meant to be true to oneself. It allowed angst-filled teens to explore their darkest thoughts and somehow feel that they were not alone in them. It was often referred to as just the Seattle sound, but adopted the name grunge when the mainstream got a hold of it. So, where does it all begin? First of all, let's talk about the name grunge. The word grunge is an American slang for someone or something that is ready for a big word, repungent or dirty. And that's kind of what it sounded like. And that was due to the fact that it was a very independent genre. It's expensive and time-consuming to get a recording to sound clean. So for this small group of bands, It was just cheaper to leave the sound dirty and just turn up the volume. Now, to be clear, these musicians never referred to themselves as grunge. They just saw themselves as rock and roll bands. Most of them actually loathed the term grunge. It's most likely that the term came from a quote from Bruce Pavitt, who described the first real grunge band, who are called Green River, as gritty vocal, roaring martial amps, ultra-loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. In 1985, their EP, Come On Down, was cited by many as the very first grunge record. Grunge elements have definitely been around prior to Green River, 
Some artists have been referred to as proto-grunge. They basically have elements of grunge well before grunge actually appeared. Um, Most notably, Neil Young has sometimes been described as the godfather of grunge, having lyrical and musical elements of the genre. Just slap some distortion on that, grit up his voice a little, and there's a grunge hit. Grunge was essentially put together by a small record company called Sub Pop, of course, out of Seattle, Washington. They would go on to start the careers of pretty much all the biggest bands in the scene. One of the first and most influential of the early grunge bands were the Melvins. They were described as 70s-influenced, slowed-down punk music. And they would go on to influence the huge bands in this style of music. So, music-wise, this was a three-instrument genre. Very garage band styles. So firstly, we have the drums. Which, in contrast to the massive drum kits that they used in 1980s pop metal, were relatively smaller. We're talking, you know, a five-six-piece set. It packed the punch without being overbearing to the music. Now, these grunge drummers, I mean, these were good drummers, and they knew how to approach the song and make the drum fit that song. That was kind of the the theme in grunge, have the music fit what the song's supposed to be. Secondly, we'd have the bass guitar, which was often distorted with what's called a fuzz pedal. So um, fuzz is a type of distortion, um, but it kind of makes like a fuzzy sound, kind of more like a sound instead of that big kind of overdrive sound. That low end was super important to that moody, dark sound that they were going for. So you start to see The bass, which is usually kind of a background instrument, it started to come to the forefront in grunge, often being a feature. You know, there'd be a big bass riff. 
if you're a bass player, they're actually really fun songs to play. Finally, the guitar, which is usually the main instrument of rock. It was heavily distorted with the use of guitar pedals. So the guitar pedals that they used, and they became huge brands, really, um, that everybody kind of uses nowadays anyways, would be something like the Big Muff or the Boss DS2. It's that little orange pedal that like literally is on everybody's pedal board. These types of guitar pedals led to that overdriven sound that defined grunge music. Now, it wasn't only distortion pedals, they also played with different sounds. Um, a delay, a chorus, these kind of odd sounds similar in something like Nirvana's Come As You Are. Those sounds played in that same mood that they wanted to portray. It was also a time that huge guitar solos were flatly rejected. Instead, they opted for more small, melodic blues type solos that would a lot of times follow the melody of the song. It was the idea that they didn't want the solo just to bring attention to the guitar player. They focused on the song and not the solo. The idea of the grunge scene was to be very simple, not overly flashy, like the rock that came before them. For example, they didn't go on stage with elaborate outfits. They went with whatever they had on at home that day. One of the big four bands was called Alice in Chains. It was made up of Jerry Cantrell, Sean Kinney, Mike Starr, and lead singer Lane Staley. They used these musical elements perfectly. The drudge of the guitar and the low of the bass mixed with that hardness, kind of that metal hardness of the drum made this perfect combination. say one of the biggest elements of the grunge sound was the singer. The grunge singing style was similar to an outburst of a loud, heavily distorted guitar. 
They were usually gravelly, raspy vocals mixed with growls, moans, screams, mumbles, and kind of all perfectly bringing to life the feeling behind that song's content. While each vocalist encompassed all of this, they all had their very particular style. Kurt Cobain used a gruff, slurred articulation. Almost like at times he didn't even want to really open his mouth that much because it was almost like he was gritting his teeth. While you have Eddie Vedder, on the other hand, who used his wide, powerful, like vibrato voice to show kind of the depth of the expression to make you really feel what he was saying. While those two voices were amazing, in my opinion, I don't think anyone had a better rock voice in grunge and I would dare to say in rock history as that of Soundgarden's Chris Cornell. His voice was, I don't even know how to describe how good his voice was. It was that perfect combination of the growl and, you know, that kind of muddy kind of singing. But then he also had this amazing range that a lot of, I would say, you know, male rock singers don't necessarily have mixed with the just sheer uniqueness of his voice. So rounding out Soundgarden, you had Kim Thayhill, Matt Cameron, and Ben Shepard. And Soundgarden actually became the first grunge band to sign to a major label in 1989. So they were the first to take the plunge. They had relative success in the early days, but they achieved superstardom with the success of their 1994 album, Super Unknown. Just listen to Chris Cornell's vocals for a moment. In my eyes, in this pose, in disguise as no one knows, has the face lies the snake in the sun in my disgrace, boiling heat, summer stench, beneath the black the sky. While the voices and music were alluring, I think personally it was the lyrical content that captured the audience. This type of music was aimed towards kids, teens, and young adults who were dealing with emotions that were often pushed under the rug in the 90s. You know, now we have a great 
system or a, at least a much better system for youth to really speak about, you know, dark thoughts that they have, depression, anxiety, all of these things. In the 90s, it wasn't really like that. Like, you would never be a kid and tell people that, like, you had depression or anxiety. It was just like, don't talk about it and we're good. It doesn't mean that they weren't dealing with it still. Grunge lyrics were typically dark, nihilistic, angst-filled, and anguished. And they addressed big themes like social alienation, abuse, assault, neglect, betrayal, isolation, trauma, and a desire of freedom. These are all things that everybody deals with, especially in their youth, in some way or form. It was one of the things that definitely attracted me to this type of music. That idea of isolation and, you know, dark thoughts that say roamed around my head. And I always had this desire for freedom. It was always alluring. But those were what drew me when I heard the lyrics of a lot of these grunge songs. I was like, oh, that's that's what I feel. So that must mean I'm not alone. And isn't that the aim of music a lot of the times? Grunge music did it perfectly for this demographic. It would hopefully go into your soul and then allow you to purge those feelings. The grunge ideology was twofold. While it had a general disenchantment with the state of society and a mistrust of authority and big corporations, it also dealt with social issues affecting young people, affecting women, and it promoted that tolerance of being different. A band who really captured that deep lyrical content was made up of Jeff Ament, Stone Gossert, Mike McCready, and Eddie Vedder. Pearl Jam dealt with themes like abandonment, things of abuse, and themes of being bullied, suicide, possible school shootings, all these really deep topics. And all of them showed up when they released their debut album, 10, in 1991. And it became one of the best albums of the 90s. Clearly I remember picking on the boy Seemed a harmless little boy the lion nasty teeth and bit the recess lady's breast how could I forget and he hit me with a surprise left my jaw left hurting ooh open just like the day oh like the honey I heard I need affection 
1990, another grunge band followed the lead of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and signed with a major label. Chris Novoselic, Dave Grohl, and Kurt Cobain formed a little band called Nirvana. Grunge was not on the radar of everyone until they released their debut album called Nevermind. The release of their first single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, instigated the grunge music phenomenon. The success of Nevermind surprised the music industry. This is a band that the music industry would think would only have relative success, not the mountain that they climbed. It not only popularized grunge, but it also established the cultural and commercial viability of alternative rock in general. When grunge eventually ended, alternative rock stayed around for a long time. I mean, it's still around. So this kind of led to everything that we have in rock today. Now, I could do and will do an entire podcast on Nirvana in the future. They are my favorite band and I have tons to say about them. But for this podcast, it's the way they influenced this movement that we're focusing on. I think Nirvana's fusion of pop melodies into this genre is really why their music was more palatable to the mainstream at first. Kind of like a like a gateway drug to the other grunge bands. Kids, teens and young adults gravitated to them because they were real. You know, it was what they were thinking but too afraid to say. All of a sudden, this subculture became the culture. For example, take fashion, right? Now, this was fashion that was usually used out of necessity, and it became high fashion. You had your your ripped jeans, your plaid shirts, the combat boots, the knit hats, the oversized sweaters. You know, this was just kind of normal, almost, I would say, dare to say, like a lower class of fashion in clothing. Um, and it was kind of like, you know, that Pacific Northwest way of life. And then all of a sudden, your closet was filled with all these things. I would know. I was a little grunge kid and I had plaid shirts galore in my closet. But it was something that it made you feel a part of something. You know, you were now a part of this culture that hit you right in the steel heart. Nirvana, like many other grunge bands, were uncomfortable with the success of grunge in particular with their success and the resulting attention that it brought. It completely went against the ideology they had. In short, they had become what they hated. Kurt Cobain once said, 
famous is the last thing I wanted to be. While grunge burned bright for a few years, it was always meant to burn out. Experts over the years have given a number of factors that could have contributed to grunge music's decline. I think there were two major factors. The first is that when grunge became mainstream, it became unstable. That influx of major label money and fame changed the culture. So as soon as it became popular, it gained a shelf life. You know, this is meant to be, you know, a culture that didn't like the big corporations and didn't really like the mainstream. By taking it to the mainstream, yes, we all got to experience it but it could only have been for a moment in time. It couldn't have lasted because it declined as soon as it became popular. Kurt Cobain said it the best in the song Serve the Servants from Nirvana's final album, In Utero. He said, Teenage angst has paid off well. Now I'm bored and old. There you go. (laughs) Just like that. That brings me to my second factor, the nail in the coffin, if you will. On April 8th, 1994, Kurt Cobain was found dead in his Seattle home from an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound. The death of the frontman of grunge music acted as a catalyst for grunge's demise. It deflated the energy from this once vibrant scene. People wanted that dark sound. They wanted to fill that kind of dark void. And it's why they kind of gravitated to grunge in the first place. I mean, coming out of the 80s and even really early 90s, you know, it was happy, happy, lots of colors, everything's neon. And it was sort of like, we feel like we need something more introspective. But while dealing with that darkness and being gravitated towards it, to kind of see splashed out this result that darkness can take you to, 
you know, it kind of takes the wind out of your sails. Like it was like, ooh, it got too real. You know, this is someone who was actually really struggling with drugs, with depression. And a lot of these grunge stars, I mean, we see um, Alice in Chains front man eventually also died of a drug overdose. And as recently as Chris Cornell dying, unfortunately, of suicide, this becomes sort of, do I want to look up to them anymore? With that, grunge came to an end and would never come back. Every generation since the beginning of recorded music has introduced a game-changing genre. From swing in the 30s, rock and roll in the 50s, punk rock in the 70s, and grunge in the 90s. Grunge happened to be that last musical revolution. Because of the digital age that we've lived in since those days, it does not allow for one genre to so completely saturate the market. The music industry doesn't have the monopoly or the control that it used to, and it would need that to have one genre kind of completely take over even for a bit. The fact that we can listen to anything we want ever anywhere in the world means that the mainstream record labels and music industry can't really tell us what to listen to anymore. I kind of relate it to, you know, if it wasn't for this um, in the 90s that the music industry could show me grunge, me as, you know, a kid from Toronto is not going to know about an underground scene happening in Seattle, Washington, clean across the continent. In nowadays, I could, you know, I just gotta turn on Spotify, YouTube, anything, and I could be listening to that. I didn't need mainstream to take it. And that's why we're not gonna get these huge game-changing genres for this generation or subsequently the next generations to come. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I don't know. It's a little bit of both, but really, that's for you to decide. All I know is that grunge music holds an iconic place in music history because no other genre has made the urge to self-destruct so listenable. I want to thank you guys for listening today. Um, please definitely join us next time for our next episode. And of course, you can follow us on all the social medias at the Human Boombox Pod, available on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And definitely follow the Human Boombox playlist, only available on Spotify, to hear any of the songs you've heard on today's episode or previous. This is Megan Minty, and I am the Human Boombox. Mm-hmm.